2: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
0: So when God said, before it, you shall encamp by the sea, it was God who was leading Israel with clear instructions to put themselves into the trap, into the trap there, hemmed in by this pass, and then right up against the Red Sea. And Israel did nothing wrong. They did nothing wrong when they were instructed to walk into the trap. And sometimes we find ourselves, we find ourselves in a desperate situation. We didn't do anything wrong, and it's not our fault but we're right in the center of God's will, and we find ourselves like they did in a desperate situation. God led Israel into a desperate situation, and God told Moses what was gonna happen when he said in verse three, Pharaoh is going to say, they're entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. He's gonna say, they're the trap. They're in a trap. So God made it very clear to Moses that Pharaoh was going to say they're an easy prey. They're an easy prey. Now at this point, Moses could have argued with God because by the way, Moses was very good with arguing with God. He kind of specialized in that. He could have had a degree in that. But he could have said, no God, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. Pharaoh has a mighty army and we don't even have one sword among us Don't you want to rethink this, Lord? Maybe you want to rethink this plan. I mean, if you were Moses and you had two million people that you were leading and not one of them has any weapons and God tells you, walk into a trap, walk into a trap, well, what'd you have said? So, But God made it very clear to Moses. God said, look, I'm going to use Israel as the bait in the trap. Israel is the bait. Now God didn't tell Moses what, how the trap was going to work, but it was very clear that Israel was going to be the bait. So Moses he just trusted and obeyed. He trusted and obeyed. He said, "Why? Because he saw many plagues that God had brought on Egypt. So even though God didn't give him the details of the trap, he said, and he didn't know it was going to be part of the Red Sea with the rod, he just trusted and obeyed. He trusted and obeyed God." The trap was gonna bring glory to God, and the question was, Moses, are you and the people willing to be the bait I need for the trap? And so God told Moses that he's gonna make sure that Pharaoh walks right into the trap with Israel as the bait, when he said in verse four, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he shall follow after them, I will be honored upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, and the Egyptians may know, that I am the Lord, and they did so. So it was God who not only led Israel into the trap, but it was God who made sure that Pharaoh came into the trap, because in order he could destroy them. So in verse five, we read that Pharaoh says to himself, what in the world have we done? Why did we ever let these people go from serving us? We lost a lot of servants. And if you remember, it's interesting what Pharaoh says. And if you remember that the meaning of the word Israel is prince with God, prince of God, prince of God. Now, if you plug that meaning into verse five, into verse five, and just look at Pharaoh was saying, why have we done this that we have left the prince of God from serving us? You know, that's a dangerous thing to want the prince of God to be your slave. And this was the whole issue that God had made clear to Pharaoh when God had said in Exodus 4.22, Exodus 4.22, thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So Israel means prince of God and God is the king, and God is the king is saying to Pharaoh, Israel, or the prince of God, is my son, even my firstborn, let my son go. So just the fact that Pharaoh even speaks the name Israel, meaning prince of God, is a direct challenge to God that he will not let God's prince or Israel go, and he's gonna retrieve God's prince or Israel back into bondage again. And that just really shows how blind and how hard-hearted Pharaoh has become. So Pharaoh starts this mad pursuit, and he's got all the chariots, all the chariots of Egypt, including the 600 of the chosen uh, chariots. And in verse 9, it just shows this wild pursuit. When it says the Egyptians, verse 9, the Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses, chariots of Pharaoh, horsemen, army overtook them in camping by the sea. So in this verse, we can really feel the aggressive charge of the Egyptian chariots as they overtook feeble little weak Israel by the sea. And what did Israel see? They saw themselves on a suicide march. They saw themselves on a death march to the sea, and they see all the dust in the distance of the chariots of the Egyptian army coming at full speed I'm not even sure Charlton Heston had captured it right. It was just something, all this whirling down on them. And they could just imagine themselves, we're gonna be, our blood's gonna stain the sand here soon. We're gonna be scattered. We're gonna be all running for our lives. Swords are gonna be flying and so forth. And then in verse 10, it says, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel, lifted up their eyes and beheld the Egyptians marched after them, they were sore afraid And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. Their fear is described as a sore afraid. That's a desperate situation. This is a desperate situation. And and as we look at this, we we can't help but think that was that Pharaoh. Another Pharaoh is gonna come against Israel. That's a new Pharaoh. That's called all nations of the earth. All nations of the world which are gonna come down like this old Pharaoh did to destroy Jerusalem. Only, and the scene's going to repeat itself, and Israel's going to realize, we're about to be destroyed. That's when they'll call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was that DVD? Yeah. Why that? What did anybody remember? What did it say? Uh, I, now, I wish at this point that I could just tell you that the children of Israel trusted and obeyed, just like Moses did. I wish I could tell you that that they trusted God as the Egyptians bore down on them. I wish that there were not verses 11 and 12 in this chapter. I wish that it weren't in the Bible. But unfortunately, they are. And that's the sad truth, because this brings out that no trust. <laughs> there. When they said in verse 11, they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, that was your problem, Moses? So you bring us out here so we can die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way to carry us forth out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you back in Egypt when we told you, leave us alone? It's better to serve the Egyptians. It's better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in this place. It's not even a respectable place to die in. Now, those were pretty harsh accusations. Those were rough, and they were making it to Moses, and the problem was God heard them. God heard those, and so it's so sad to see this and, and unfortunately, this wasn't the first time that they complained to Moses. They could get a degree in complaining. They just forgot when they said, you know, it was better for us to, to live in Israel, uh, Egypt. They just forgot Pharaoh was killing them in Egypt by killing the firstborn, not the firstborn, killing all the baby boys in Egypt. All right, this is the first phase. This is the desperate situation. And in this desperate situation, the people must have been jumping up and down are running all around. What shall we do? What shall we do? Now starts the second phase in this history. And in this phase, Moses told them, don't be afraid, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. See the salvation of the Lord. So Moses makes now a promise to them that they're not gonna see the Egyptians anymore after that day. And Moses told them, just wait, just wait. This, when Moses said this, Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. This is one of the finest moments in Moses' life. This is great. As he stood firm there on the shore, confident God's gonna save Israel. I don't know how, but he's gonna do it. He's gonna destroy Egypt. And even though they're fast bearing down on them, Moses stands and says, wait and look, wait and look. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. When we're in a desperate situation, as they were, there needs to come this phase. There needs to come this phase when we just turn all of our efforts, all of our anxieties, all of our fears, we just turn to God, and we just wait and hope for his intervention, for his intervention, which is what David calls resting in God, waiting patiently for him in Psalm 37, seven. Psalm 37.7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings eat wicked devices to pass. So before we look at Israel, and before we blame them by saying, how could they do that? How could they accuse God like that uh, of wanting to kill them? Let's remember, we've all been there. We've all been there. There is a beast inside of each one of us, and we have to get good at killing that beast every day because he keeps on getting up again. So this is the second phase in this history. This is the phase of waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping. And now starts the next phase, the next phase, which we see in verse 15. In verse 15 it says, The Lord said unto them, to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speaking unto the children of Israel, if they go forward, go forward, go on, but lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out over the, thy hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So in this next phase, we see Moses had to do something. Moses had to do something. It wasn't just sit back and just wait for God to do it all. Moses had to do something. Moses had to stretch out his hand over the sea to divide it, and the people had to go forward. That's why this th- third phase is called God's process. It's a process. It's a process because the sea didn't part until Moses lifted up his rod over the sea. It's a process because the sea didn't part until the people started to move forward. So Moses lifts up his rod. Then we read that Jehovah Jesus called the angel of the Lord what he did. In verse 15, the Lord said unto Moses, wherefore Christ unto me, say unto the children of Israel, go forward, lift thou up thy rod, stretch it over the sea, and the children of Israel shall go on dry land. So first of all, as the Egyptians are, are coming at breakneck speed, there's an immediate need because the Egyptians are about to reach Israel. The Egyptians had to be held back. And Israel had had needed at this point a very strong guard in the rear, in their rear, to protect them. So we read that the angel of the Lord who's in the pillar of fire and cloud, who was in the front of Israel, now moves to the rear of Israel to behind them. So God passes from the front to the rear where the need was the greatest. He went to where the need was the greatest. Moses is in the front. He's in the front of the camp. He's holding out his rod over the sea to divide the sea, and God says, you just stay right there, Moses, and I'm gonna go, I'll be right back. And he goes to the rear, and that's part of the process. That was part of the process. The rod was part of the process. The moving was part of the process of the pillar. Now, before this happened, Israel's greatest need was for guidance so God, in the pillar of cloud and the fire, was in the front of Israel to guide them. O thou great Jehovah, but now Israel needs protection from the rear, where the enemy is just about to annihilate them. So He moves from the front to the rear. God moved from the where the need was the greatest. Isn't that encouraging? It shows us how in our lives God comes to where our need is the greatest. Like in the rear, as it says here, and as he talked about in Isaiah 58:8. Isaiah 58.8, where it says, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear reward or thy rear guard. And the effect was in verse 20: it came to pass, uh, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, that'd be the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to these, that'd be the Israelites, so that the one came not near the other all the night. So when God in the pillar of the cloud moved to the rear, God came in between the Egyptians and Israel, and he was toward the Egyptians. He was a pillar that was described as a pillar of cloud and darkness to the Egyptians. So all of a sudden, the Egyptians find themselves in a thick fog, a really thick fog. You ever been in a thick fog? You ever been in a pea soup where you can't see your feet? That's what happened to the Egyptians. All of a sudden, they find themselves in such a thick cloud, they're in a cloud. And now there's one more element that the Egyptians found themselves in. It's one thing to be in pea soup where you can't see anything during the daytime, or at least you've got some light. Now, all of a sudden, it's not only the pea soup, but it's darkness. They can't see that, have you ever been like that? I remember one time, I was in Lake Tahoe at night, and it was snowing, and there wasn't a moon out, and it just—it was just like the Egyptians. No street lights, he couldn't see only well, they didn't have street lights, the Egyptians didn't, we didn't Lake Tahoe, but anyway. But they're just engulfed in this fog and darkness, And this fog and utter darkness carried on all night. So the Egyptians were forced to stop and they weren't able to come near Israel. And this went on all night long. What a night. What a long night that was. That's part of the process. And the pillar removing from the front to the rear and the all night long fog and darkness that held the Egyptians back was all part of God's process in this third phase. Israel was not delivered by a leap. Israel was delivered by a process, and this is the process. Now can't you imagine Moses, at the beginning of all this, and saying to God, Lord, it would have been so much easier if you just would have eliminated the Egyptians when they were back there in their stables, getting their chariots ready. I mean, you, you killed the Egyptian firstborns. It would be just a whole lot less stressful for us. I mean, we we could have just gotten the report. Oh, the Egyptians died when they were getting their chariots ready. That would have been so much better. Why doesn't it have to be all this drama, all this drama, this painful process with the rod and the sea and the dry land and the cloud and the darkness? Couldn't you just transport Israel by a miracle to the other side? I mean, that would have been so much easier on us. We could have just waved bye-bye. But God was looking for something more, a special honor on himself. So God told Moses, this was all going to be about God getting the glory, and it's the process, it's in the process that God gets the glory. And we find ourselves in the same situation, asking God, couldn't you just eliminate all the drama of this whole thing? Just make life a little easier? But it's all about God getting the glory, and the glory comes in the process, so that's why this is a lesson to instruct us. So the process, according to verse 20, is that the pillar has two sides to it. The pillar on the one side, toward the Egyptians, it was a pillar of cloud and darkness, but on the other side, toward Israel, the same pillar was perfect light to Israel. That was the same pillar. The same pillar had on one side the cloud of darkness and confusion to the Egyptians, and at the same time, it was light and clarity to Israel. The same pillar. The same pillar paralyzed the Egyptians from making one step forward, and on the other side, it gave light so that Israel could march on. Two sides, two sides to the same pillar. Two sides is seen often in the Bible. The Bible itself has two sides. To some, the Bible is light, and it results in salvation. As 1 Peter 1.23 says, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Light by the word of God. Psalm 119, 105, Psalm 19.105, thy word is a light, a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. But the Bible has another side, just like the pillar did. And it's spoken of in 2 Peter 3:16. 2 Peter 3:16, as also in all his epistles, seeing so you know Paul, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things hard to be understood. <laughs> you think? Some of the things Paul says are a little hard to understand, never mind. But then it says, in the which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction, their own destruction. The Bible has two sides. The pillar has two sides. The ark of the tabernacle had two sides. To some, the ark was a wonderful place where God met as it says in Exodus 25, Exodus 25, as we have over there in the theater, the replica of it. There will I meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto thee, Israel. What a blessing. What a blessing the ark was. One side. One side of the ark was a blessing. It was a blessing to the house of Obed-Edom, as it says in 1 Chronicles 13, 14. 1 Chronicles 13, 14. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Why? Because the ark was there. But there was another side to the ark. Another side to the ark. Yes, there was a side of blessing, But the ark, like the pillar, like the Bible, had another side. And the Philistines saw that side. In 1 Samuel 5, 6, 1 Samuel 5, 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod. And he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod, and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. The ark had two sides. The Bible has two sides. The pillar had two sides. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has two sides. As Simeon said, these two sides, when he was holding the Lord Jesus as a baby, he said in Luke 2.34, Luke 2.34, Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel
2: at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, 330 Santee, California, 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, 330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor at FriendshipWithGod.org. That's Tom Cantor at FriendshipWithGod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come
1: join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on youtube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.